Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 7, where we're going to continue our study this morning. And as you do that, I want to remind you, like I do just about every time I get to preach, why John wrote his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. As we pointed out many times over the past six months, that purpose is, is a dual purpose. First, He wants to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, which means that He wants to put on display who He is. World, this is who Jesus is. But it's also evangelistic. It's not just saying, hey, this is who Jesus is, but hey, I want you to believe in Him. Because when you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. As we might expect with that stated purpose in mind, throughout this gospel, John will record people struggling with this identity of who Jesus is. Whether it was the signs that Jesus did or the words that Jesus said, people were faced to answer the question, Who is this man? I've titled this sermon, That Question, Who is this man? Because it is at the forefront of our discussion this morning. As Trent pointed out last week in John 7, we find ourselves six months away from the cross. I mean, we're only in chapter 7, right? So if you think about it, if you think about the life of Jesus, we are now six months away and we're only in chapter 7. So you can see John's going to get a lot more detailed as he's starting to record the final events of Jesus' life. With the, the cross looming, the hostility and rejection that Jesus faced will increase. John told us from the very beginning that this was going to happen. In John 1.11, he wrote, And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We began to see that hostility from the Jews in chapter 2 when Jesus called them out for misusing his father's house. In chapter 5, after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, John wrote that the Jews persecuted Jesus, and then when he told them that he was the son, in in verse 18 of chapter 5, John wrote, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. The identity of Jesus was divisive. John, in his purpose statement, said that he is revealing who Jesus is so that life may be found. But there's, an, there's another response to that. It's hatred, hostility, desire to put him to death. We saw continued unbelief in chapter 6 when the people asked Jesus to perform another sign so that they might believe that what he's saying about who he is is true, despite the fact that he had just performed a sign where he fed between 18 and 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. The people were following him because of what he could provide. And then when Jesus declares to them, no, look, If I give you bread today, you're going to be hungry tomorrow. But I am the bread of life. I am the bread that will completely satisfy you. How do they respond? This is too hard for us to believe. This is too difficult. 
and they turn and they walk away. They rejected him. Just last week, we read that Jesus was, wasn't in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him and that the world hated him because when he testified about their actions, he revealed to the, to the world that they were evil. And then in John 7, 5, last week, we saw that not even his own brothers believed in him. This question of Jesus's identity is going to continue to be a problem as we go through John's gospel. But the reality is that it's still an issue today. Even in this room. Even within the church. We have to ask ourselves, who is this man? I've identified three main sections this morning in our passages as people struggle to answer that question. First, we will see confusion. Then we will see conviction. And then we will see contempt. So starting in chapter 7, verse 25 through 29, let's look at the the response of confusion. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. As we begin this section, I want to remind you that Jesus has just finished calling the Jews out on their on their hypocrisy. He points out that they were inconsistent between their beliefs and their practices. Specifically, his example was circumcision. He said, hey, look, Moses gave you circumcision, and if it came down to where the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, what do you do? You perform that circumcision. But yet, I heal a man on the Sabbath, and you all hate me to the point that you want to kill me. So he says, let's judge rightly. Let's be real. Let's look at that. That is an issue. You're inconsistent. This boldness with which Jesus spoke created a lot of confusion among the people. We saw last week in verse 20 that when Jesus asked why they were seeking to kill him, the people thought he was crazy. He was possessed because they didn't know that anybody was trying to kill him. Remember, all of chapter 7 takes place at the Feast of Booths. So every male Jew is traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate for a week where they're going to live in tents to honor God who provided for their fathers in the wilderness. But then we get to verse 27, and it says, hey, this is the man that they were seeking to kill. That's the people in Jerusalem. It says the people of Jerusalem knew that. So what I think is in verse 20, when you say, well, who is seeking to kill you? What are you talking about? Is you have people who are traveling in. They're the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, and they're not in tune with what's going on there. But the people of Jerusalem are familiar with this man. They're familiar with the intent of the Jewish religious leaders. And they reveal their knowledge. They say, this man is the one that they seek to kill. But here he is. In the temple, at the Feast of Booths, 
And he's calling us out on our hypocrisy. And what's the response of the Jewish religious leaders? Nothing. Silence. There's no rebuttal. There's no rebuke. You understand why the people are confused. Because if if this guy is the one that they're seeking to kill because he's not who he says he is, how come they're not doing anything right now? They're allowing him to teach in the temple. What's going on? Could it be that they have some knowledge that those people didn't have? Could it be that they've discovered that he is actually the Christ and they just haven't told them yet? He was speaking so boldly. And the boldness with which Christ spoke came from knowledge. Knowledge that he was speaking the truth. This same boldness was granted to the apostles by the Holy Spirit in the early church. They were convinced of something that was true, and so they were able to speak boldly into the world based on their knowledge, belief, and trust in what Jesus had revealed. In Acts chapter 4, if we were to go through Acts, you're going to see boldness in the early church. Acts chapter 4, believers prayed for this boldness, and it was granted to them. Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31 And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaking and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen who in, in, in the face of possible death preaches the gospel, doesn't care. As a result, he's stoned, but boldly proclaiming the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, we can read about how the newly converted Saul preached the gospel boldly in Jerusalem and Damascus. We move on to Acts 13, we can read about how Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly against the Jews who were trying to contradict the truth that they had been teaching. And then they declared, you know what? We're going to bring the gospel to the the Gentiles. We preached it to you. You've rejected it. We're going to go to the Gentiles. In chapter 4, when the unbelieving Jews were trying to stir up the Gentiles, the newly newly converted Gentiles, and the Jews were like, hey, no, you got to, these people are telling you lies. Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly. In Ephesians 6, Paul asked the church to pray that he would continue to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when you know something to be true, when you are, matter of fact, I mean, you think about if you're a spouse and you're getting into an argument with with your spouse, it's because you think something's true and they don't see it that way. And so you hold your ground firm. No, that's, this is right. This is true. So you're boldly telling your wife that you're right and she's wrong. I'm speaking from my side. Normally we're wrong, but, but still, I believed I was true, so I spoke boldly. That's the way this works. When you are convinced and you know something to be true, you're empowered. There's no shame. It's the truth. So I'm going to be able to speak that truth no matter what the circumstances are because I know it to be true. 
Those apostles could speak out boldly because they knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he was the son of God. He was the promised Messiah. He's revealed himself to them. They've beheld his glory. John chapter one, verse 14. Glory is of the only son from the father. They know him. What about us? Would we be able to describe ourselves as bold messengers of Christ? Don't we know? Don't we believe him to be the, God, the, the son of God? The Christ? Are we bold or are we passive? I don't know what that looks like. Probably because I'm not bold enough. Now, I'm not saying, I love how last week Trent was like, okay, don't be a jerk, right? You're not just going to be a jerk to everybody because you know what's something to be true. But in the face of any circumstance, are you willing to preach the gospel because you are convinced that it's true? Whether or not you're going to, you are going to get rejected, understand that it's not you that's being rejected, but it's Christ once again. And he's used to that. And you must be willing to face that as well if you're going to be his follower. Are you trying to hide? If I can just get through this life without ever trying to step on anybody's toes, then I'm, I'll be a good Christian and I get to go celebrate with him eternally. That's not why you're here. So for community church, why do we exist? We exist to make much of God. Where? In our neighborhoods and to the nations. How do we do that? By reflecting Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was bold. He proclaimed the truth boldly wherever he went because it was true. And when he did it here, the leaders didn't say anything back, and that confused people. Maybe he's telling the truth. Could this be the Christ? But then as soon as it seems like momentum's starting to go in a positive direction, their unbelief takes over. And they start to think of the ways that he, he can't possibly be that guy. It doesn't fit their beliefs about who the Messiah would be. They say, this can't be him. Because we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, this response is a combination of two things, misinformation and misinterpretation. First, they were misinformed about where Jesus came from. You see, the Jews knew that their Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. If we, if we look in Matthew 2, we can see that clearly. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born, what was their response? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
But see, most of them didn't identify with Jesus as from Bethlehem, right? Because shortly after his birth, an angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, you've got to flee. And so they go into Egypt, and eventually he returns where? Nazareth, where he was raised. So he wasn't known as Jesus of Bethlehem. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. We saw that earlier on in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, when Jesus began calling his first disciples, you've got Philip who goes to Nathaniel and is like, good news, we found him. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And what was Nathaniel's response? That doesn't fit, right? What good can come from Nazareth? They were misinformed. Not only that, but they also misinterpreted the prophets. Prophets such as Malachi 3.1. In Malachi 3, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. With the understanding that he would come suddenly into the temple, this belief grew out from that point to where the Jews said, well, he's going to suddenly come. None of us are going to know who he is. None of us are going to know where he comes from. He's just going to appear and redeem us. And if you were to go read Jewish historical documents, they would even go on to say, it's possible that the Messiah doesn't even know he's the Messiah at this point. And then he will come. We won't know where he came from, but he will just show up and he will redeem us. So when they compare their beliefs and the common interpretation of what the prophets had said, Jesus doesn't fit. It can't be him. Because we know where he came from. And they were confused. So Jesus responds to their questions and says, you know me? You know where I come from, do you? Well, let me make something very clear. I did not come of my own. Jesus is pointing them and saying, He who is true sent me, and you don't know him. He's saying, look, you don't believe. You, you, you say you know me, but you can't get past me being a man. And that, that's indicated in their question in verse 27, right? They say, we know where this man came from. But Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and my Father who is true sent me. So while you know me, while you think you know me, let me make this clear. You do not know my Father. You don't know him. He then contrasts the Jews with himself and says, but I do. I know him because he sent me. I came from him. In their confusion, Jesus speaks bold truth. There's a lot of things going on in their minds, and Jesus is trying to penetrate that and saying, listen, you do not know my Father. I am the Son of God. Believe that. That statement produced conviction in the people in two different ways. You're going to see one response where they are convicted that this man is just a disturbance and he needs to be put away with. But then you also have some, and this is finally we're getting some positive, right? 
Because for so often, we've even seen people that believed, but then Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because they weren't believing in him. They were just believing in the signs that he was doing. They didn't behold his glory. They just beheld the signs. I mean, this man's doing something. He's feeding people. He's healing people. Something's going on, but they didn't see him. They couldn't understand who he was. Finally, we see some people who respond with conviction in a positive way where they say, this could be the Christ. Look at verses 30 through 31 and see that conviction. So, in response to Jesus boldly speaking this out, you don't know the Father, they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So after Jesus boldly calls out the Jews, the Jewish leaders say, okay, we can't just let this continue. Possibly hearing the, the, the rumors, the, the mutterings of the people in the crowd where they're saying, well, he's speaking and they're not doing anything. They finally say, okay, we got to do something now because he just basically condemned all of us to hell. He said, we don't know the Father. So let's arrest him. And then John does this little cool thing. He just slips this in, revealing the divine aspect, the divine identity of who Jesus is. What does he say? They sought to arrest him, but they couldn't even put a finger on him. Couldn't lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And we've talked about that a lot in John's gospel. That's a theme, right? He's always talking about that hour that's coming. When Mary came to him and said, hey, they're out of wine. He said, what, does, what do I have to do with this woman? Not that he didn't say it that way. I made sure to say that he didn't say it that way whenever I preached it. What does, this have to do, what does this have to do with me, woman? <laughs> My hour has not yet come. And you move on through John's gospel, and he keeps saying, My hour is not here. My hour is not here. My hour is near. My hour is quickly approaching. And then he gets to the point where he will say, The hour is now. But realize that he's in control here because Jesus does get arrested down the road. So I want you to remember this. They tried to arrest him, but couldn't touch him. So when you see Jesus get arrested later on, realize that he's allowing that to happen. He is in control. And he's just following this divine timetable the whole way through. The cross is still six months away, so it's not time for him to go yet. But then we see some positive conviction. So we saw the negative. Let's get away, do away with him. Let's get him out of here. He's causing a disturbance and we're tired of it. He's making us look bad, so let's arrest him. But then you see a positive conviction. Some people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, I believe these people are different from the people we saw in the past. And I'll tell you why. Before, they saw the signs. These people look at all of the evidence of the signs and they see him and they say, will the Messiah do any more than this? Will the Christ do more signs than what he's done? I mean, he's done everything he could possibly do to show us that that's who he is. Now, their faith, I don't think, is firm yet. They're asking it in a question, right? They're, they're, They're a little insecure, but they're starting to look at the evidence and saying, 
what more will the Christ do? This, this might be him, y'all. So there's this conviction of, hey, we've got to look at the whole picture here. This might be him. This positive response by some leads to even more negative response from the other side. Eventually, they just re- respond in contempt. In verses 32 through 36, it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, that he could possibly be the Christ. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The Pharisees heard some of these people expressing their belief in Jesus as possibly being the Christ. And they're driven to anger. They hated Jesus so much, the Pharisees, that they were willing to join forces with the chief priests, which are the Sadducees. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you, why don't you go home and research the differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees? But I'm going to tell you, there were some significant theological issues between those two groups of people and also their social status, their economic status. They didn't get along very well. But when it came to Jesus... They saw him as a threat. He was a problem. And they said, hey, we've got we've to handle this. So we've got, I guess in a positive light, there was unity there for a negative reason. But they said, we've got to get past our differences to take care of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. We've got to get rid of him. And then Jesus foretells of his departure, and he declares their state of unbelief once more. He says, I will be with you a little longer, And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Jesus tells them that he's going to his father and that they can't go there with him. There is no greater indictment on these Jewish religious leaders than to tell them that. I'm going to my father and you're not coming. Jesus will later say in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to the Jewish people who are following their teaching, you rejecting me is rejecting the Father. There is no other way. Ultimately, he's telling them, if you do not believe what I'm saying about who I am, you will be condemned to hell. He tells his disciples something similar in chapter 13. But he doesn't leave it as a statement of condemnation for them. Let's read this. John chapter 13, verses 33 through 36. It says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Sounds familiar, right? Same thing he just told them. Well, let's keep going, though. 
Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I love Peter. Because Peter, Jesus just says, hey, a new command I give to you, you're to love one another. And Peter says, yeah, 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 yeah. But about this other thing, hey, where are you going again? Like, forget that. Like, whatever. All I heard you say was, you're leaving, and I can't go with you. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. You see the difference there? You've got disciples that were following Jesus that believed in who he was. And then you've got the Jews on this side, the Jewish leaders who do not believe. And he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Hey, but you're going to come later. Because you believe. This is condemnation. And he's doing it in public. Boldly telling them, if you don't believe... You will be condemned. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders don't heed Jesus' warning, and they just mock him instead. Where does he think he'll go that we won't find him? Where is he going to go out to the dispersion, to the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? These are Greeks who have converted to Judaism. Oh, are they going to go teach those guys? Yeah, I'm not going out there. I don't want any part of that. It's contempt. And this is where our passage leaves us this morning. As we continue in John's gospel, we're going to continue to see Jesus' claims causing various types of responses. Jesus was warning the Jews of the consequences of their unbelief. Warning them that they shouldn't delay in believing. Because he would be leaving soon. And they wouldn't be able to find him. See, if you have not believed, I want to do the same thing this morning and let you know boldly but lovingly, if you don't believe in Jesus as the Christ, as Jesus who went to the cross and paid the punishment on your behalf. Look, if you, if you have not heard this before, I want you to understand You are a sinner. We all are. And the penalty of that is eternal separation from our God who created us. If you don't believe, you will spend the rest of eternity separated from God in eternal punishment. But Jesus, and this is the good news, Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. He satisfied that wrath If you'll believe in him, you will have eternal life. You believe that he died, that he was buried, that he resurrected and conquered death. Then you can live eternally with him. But know that today is the day of salvation. Because you see, there will be a point where man will no longer be saved. That there will no longer be an opportunity to believe. There will come a point When Jesus says, all right, that's it. The last one has believed and I'm coming and I'm going to reign on this earth. Today is the day of salvation. So if you hear the voice of God calling you to surrender your life and follow him, 
to believe in that death, burial, and resurrection. Not only believe it, but trust that it's true for you, that it is saving you. Then surrender. Jesus said in chapter 6 that he is the bread of life, and if you come to him, you will be completely satisfied. You will not be left wanting. So I invite you to come. I invite you just, when we go into our time of worship, if that is you, then you cry out to God, God, give me the faith to believe that. I'll be in the back. If you want to talk to me, you can come talk to me. Christians, I extend the same question to you. Who, who is this man? What do you believe about this man? What do your actions say about what you actually believe? Like, I, I know we would all say, well, yeah, I believe that. But how deeply rooted is that? See, I would encourage you to continue. As we go through John's gospel, this is a perfect opportunity. Continue to get to know your Savior. Continue to spend time getting to know Him. This is something you get to do for the rest of your life. I want to know more of you, Jesus. I want to know you better. Do you really? How often do you spend time in His Word where He's revealed who He is? Hey, look. My community group has a little bit, they're unfortunate because I talk about sometimes what we all struggle with in community group. We all struggle with reading scripture, right? All of the guys that are in our group, we, we all talk about it. And I'm sure a lot of you talk about it in your groups. The discipline, but look, it's not a discipline. It's getting to know my Savior. It's getting to know Jesus. I want to know him. Because when I know him, what does that lead to? It leads to boldness because I'm convinced that what he said is true. And I can share what he said with anyone, despite the circumstances, despite the situation. I am emboldened to share the gospel because I believe that if someone believes in this truth, they will be saved. And I believe that if they don't, they will be condemned. And so I get past myself because I'm convinced this is true. And I want to see people come to know the same guy, the same man that I know the man who is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, my Savior. I want you to know him. So church, behold his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. See him for all that he is. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. Believe and be bold. Be bold.